This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This is my 18th message from the book of Hebrews, but it has been seven weeks since the last message. And if you had to take a seven-week break in the book of Hebrews, this is a great place to do it. I wish that I would have done that on purpose. I wish I would have realized before I started, so I would have looked incredibly intelligent, uh, that I knew this was a great place to pause. I didn't at all. And the reason it's such an important place to stop is because chapter 8 begins with these words. Now the point in what we are saying is this. That is a mathematical phrase in the Greek which means the sum of everything is this. In other words, at the very beginning of chapter 8, the author is going to summarize what has been previously said. In about the middle of chapter 6, the author is going to transition to really a new focus that will be the focus of chapter 8, 9, and 10. And so it's almost as if he pans out a little bit and says, okay, before we transition here to a bit of a new theme in the book, I want to remind you where we've been. And that's exactly what he does here at the beginning of, of Hebrews 8. He not only summarizes where they've been, but prepares us for where the book is going. This morning, I want to, for just a moment, pan out a little bit further, knowing that many of you are new to our church, and I know we've got a lot of college students that are just coming back, and you may not have heard my uh, previous 18 messages on the book of uh, Hebrews, and so I just want to remind you that this book as a whole most likely is written to Jews in Rome who had been raised in this old system of Judaism, but had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they heard the invitation of Jesus Christ, they left the old system of Judaism and the temple and the rituals and the sacrifices and the laws, and they came to Jesus, where they began to find new life and their understanding of the new covenant. But in response to that, they began to face incredible pressure and persecution from many different fronts. There was the religious institution, the ones that killed Jesus, who are now putting pressure on them to go back to Judaism. There's the family pressure because the family life and the religious life was so entwined that it was hard to separate them. So they were not only leaving church in a sense, they were leaving family. So there's all that pressure to come back. There was political pressure. We know from Hebrews 10 that people were losing property, they were facing death, they were being severely persecuted because of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. There is demonic pressure, just the pressure on all of us uh, as the enemy tries to pull us away from faithfulness to Jesus. And then there's just the personal spiritual pressure. So the author of Hebrews knows that there's a few dangers. There is the external dangers a family and politics and all of that that might pull them away from faith. But apart from all that, some might fall away, not simply because of the external pressure, but just because they get lazy in their relationship with Jesus. 
They just don't take it seriously. They don't seek the Lord and they begin to, as Hebrews 2 says, drift away. The author of Hebrews is extremely burdened for them in the same way to a very small degree, we may feel burdened for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and maybe praying that God would help them be faithful. Exact situation here, but the author of Hebrews is just broken over the thought that those who had made a previous statement of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ might leave it and deny it because of the heaviness of the pressure. So the whole book is written to plead with them to stay faithful, to plead with them to not give up, to to walk with Jesus, to not go back. The way in which he does this is so beautiful because he doesn't come at them with the laws and the commands and guilt in order to make them stay faithful. He just reminds them of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. So his motivation to them is, is simply this. Don't leave Jesus to go back because Jesus is always better than what you left. I don't know what you left, but Jesus is better. And, and I don't know the suffering, but I'm going to tell you something. Our God is the rewarders of those who, who seek him. And there is, a, there is a better land. There is a, a better reward. So just stay faithful because there's something better and Jesus is greater. So the whole motive here is just to exalt Jesus Christ. And in, in seeing him as beautiful and glorious hopefully those people would hold on to their faith. And this is really one of the reasons why we need the book of Hebrews so desperately here thousands of years later. It's not because we face the same kind of persecution they did because we don't. We have some maybe family pressures. There may be some just internal spiritual pressures to drift away from the Lord. That stuff is true, but nothing like they encountered. But listen to this. The reason this book is so important and helpful for us is not only because of the way in which it exalts Christ and his divinity and his humanity, and we need that vision of Jesus, but because if you have actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, you left something to come to Jesus. I know that because in order to come to Jesus, you must repent. And repentance means you're turning your back on something in order to embrace Jesus Christ. And whether you realize this or not, the greatest battle of your life every single moment of the day is the battle to not go back to what you left. Do you feel that? To not go back to that sin or that habit or that relationship or that workplace or that thought pattern or that addiction. You left something. You may have just left your own self-righteousness where you thought you could get to heaven on your own works and you were confounded with the reality that there's nothing you can do. And so you left your own self-righteousness and came to the righteousness of Christ. But listen, we are constantly being pulled back to that old life. And because of that, we need the constant reminder that Jesus is better than anything you left. And then no matter what it costs you, it's really no sacrifice because it's hard to call it a sacrifice if what you get is better than what you left. That's not a sacrifice. So we need these constant reminders from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better and he's worth it and he rewards those who seek him. And when we come this morning to Hebrews 8, I think that as, as we read this in just a moment, you might immediately think that, that it's a bit dry. And maybe it's a little heavy theologically and you're just trying to juggle everything in life and you're going to read this and think, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, why does this matter to me? How does this 
transform me? Not just give me new information, but how does this change me? I want you to listen carefully. I believe that the truth of this text, as we see it, particularly at the end of chapter eight, has the ability to do something absolutely incredible and life-changing for you today. Because there are many people who got invited to come into a system of Christianity and they accepted that invitation and they got into the system with all of its do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, but somehow in the midst of all of that, they missed Jesus. And there's just no life and no joy and no freedom. There's just a lot of sense of I've got to keep up with the system and they have never actually encountered a life-changing, real life-giving relationship with the real Jesus Christ. I think what God wants to do this morning is something incredibly liberating and deeply terrifying. He wants to dismantle your system and replace it with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's really scary because there's safety in a system. There's safety in someone just telling you what to do. God doesn't want you to live that way. He wants to welcome you into something more real. And he teaches that as we come to understand the point of Hebrews chapter 8. If you're there in Hebrews 8, say amen. Listen as I read these words. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent. That the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying... See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, talking about the Old Testament covenant, specifically the one with Moses. If it had been faultless. There wouldn't be an occasion to look for a second covenant, which we have in the New Testament. For he, the Lord, finds fault with them when he says, and now he quotes Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, and we are in those days, church, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Listen, here it is, starting in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here is the new covenant that the Lord is offering to us right now on this side of the cross. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So this chapter has two parts to it. It is both a transition from what has been said and a reminder to a transition to something new that is going to be discussed in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So you could divide the text up this way. It first of all, in verses 1 through the beginning of 6, is a reminder that Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better priest. That's chapter 8, verses 1 through the beginning of 6. Then in the middle of 6, it makes a new transition to this. Jesus offers a better covenant. So that's Romans 8. Jesus is a better priest, and Jesus offers a better covenant. Both of those needing to be seen together as we transition out of all this talk about the priesthood into the talk about a new covenant, which is exactly what has the power to give you new life in Jesus Christ. So let's look at those together. First of all, Jesus is a better priest. If you're taking notes, write that down. That is the point of verses one through the beginning of six. Jesus is a better priest. This argument started in chapter four, verse 14. When it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. This introduction of Jesus as the high priest and then the rest of four and most of five and all of six and all of seven is constantly making this case that Jesus is a great and a better, a permanent, a perfect, a superior priest. And kind of the culmination of that argument, the big crescendo is at the end of chapter seven. Look at Hebrews 7, starting in verse 23. It says, The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. And this is a beautiful verse, verse 25. Consequently, because he's a permanent priest, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, meaning Jesus is always saving us. He is always praying for us. He is a permanent priest. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should, and this is an important phrase for us, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for for his own sins and then for those of the people, since Jesus, he, did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, the promise God made, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this just incredible realization that we have this incredible high priest who is permanent, who is superior in every way, who is saving us and who is praying for us constantly throughout all of eternity. Now, it's right here that we begin to have a problem with the book of Hebrews. And here's why. I, I may be wrong on this, but I would doubt many of you have as your great philosophical debate or theological debate in your own mind, that one thing that if you could just get settled on that, you would give yourself fully to Christianity. I doubt that that one thing is the question, is Jesus actually better than Melchizedek and Aaron? I, I just, I don't know. I doubt that that's what you came in with. 
And I doubt that as you maybe presented the gospel to someone this week, you saw someone and said, listen, I think I figured out your problem. You're still hung up on Melchizedek. Like that's your deal. I've got great news. My pastor just spent like six sermons on how Jesus is better than Melchizedek. This is amazing. So this is not your deal. And because of that, you immediately come to Hebrews 8 and go, why? I get it. Like, that's fine. I don't really understand why I need a priest, but I get it. Jesus is better than Aaron and Melchizedek. Let me just clarify without you having to go back and listen to all of my previous sermons, why this matters to you. It matters because everything that you long for in life, everything you need in life, everything your heart wants in life, all of the life and the love and the peace and the joy is all found in God, okay? There's nothing good outside of God. Life has no meaning outside of God, but here's the problem, you can't get to God. It's impossible. There's no possible way. You can't do enough good to get yourself to God. So there's massive issue where everything you long for is in God and you can't get to him. That old bridge illustration shows us God is here, you are here, and your sins have separated from you, God, and you can't get there, which means this. Listen, you need a priest. You may have never had that thought in your life. You know what? I need a priest. But you do because God has always appointed a priest as the one who is a mediator between God and man. So God loves you. He's always wanted a relationship with humanity. And because of that, he's appointed priests in order to make the way. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have these priests that have been called by God and equipped by God to make a way for people to get to God. You have to have a priest. What Jesus is saying here is that the priest that you need, the permanent, everlasting, great priest is Jesus Christ. Like the only way you get to God and access to everything God has is through Jesus Christ. There is one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. And so chapter 8 just begins with this reminder that, listen, don't underestimate the significance of this priest. I know what you've thought of maybe as you look at the Old Testament. and pre- No, this, this is totally different. Because it says, first of all, the high priest that we have, we have such a high priest. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Meaning, he is the ruling, reigning king of the universe. All authority has been given to him. And there he is as the ruling, sovereign, eternal priest. There will never be another one. You don't need any other priest. This is God's one. And he's been appointed for you. He is actually in the very presence of God. Look at verse two. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So in the old covenant, if you wanted to get to the presence of God, there was a curtain and the only one that could get there was the high priest and the high priest would then go into the presence of God on your behalf because you couldn't get there. What it's saying now is that curtain has been torn in two. Jesus is in the true tabernacle in heaven and he is bringing you into the very presence of God as you have a relationship with him. He is a minister in the holy place, it says. Continually there at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. It says in verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. 
Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What does Jesus offer? Not a bull or a goat or a ram, but himself. He gives himself as the sacrifice. Look at verse 5. It says, all of those under the law and the old covenant, they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God says, I want you to build a tabernacle. Why? Because I want to meet with my people. And so Moses gets all of this instruction on how to build a tabernacle. And when the people wanted to meet with God, they went to the priest. The priest went into the tabernacle. What it's saying is this, the true tabernacle is Jesus Christ. And the way into the presence of God is Jesus Christ. And everything you see in the Old Testament, all of that tabernacle, look, was a copy or a shadow or a pattern of the reality. So how is it that Jesus steps up, we talked about this last week, in front of the temple and says, tear it down and I'll raise it up in three days. Because what Jesus is saying is, you don't need that temple anymore. Like, I know that's the place of worship. I know that means more to you than anything else. But Jesus says, you don't need that. Why? Because the only reason that I told you to build that is because that was to point you to me. Now I'm here, so you don't need that anymore. Jesus says, I am the reality. Everything else is just a copy. Everything else is just a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is the real thing. You don't need a temple. You don't need sacrifices. You don't need feasts. You don't need rituals. You don't need laws. Jesus replaced every bit of that. So here's the question. Like, why would you ever go back to the shadows when you have the reality? Like, why would the woman at the well go get another husband when she finds out that what she's really thirsty for is a relationship with Jesus? So every time we go back, we're going back to a pitiful and disappointing substitute and missing the reality of Jesus Christ. So the, so the point is that Jesus is in fact that high priest, the only one who can bring you to God and he nullifies the need for any of the old system. It has been dismantled as it tells us in verse 13. And it's with that reality that we come to this transition point. So everything was about the priest, the priest, the priest. You gotta get to God and only Jesus can get you to God. And then in the middle of verse six, it transitions to the idea of the covenant. Look at what it says in verse six. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, well, the Old Testament way. As the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So in the first part of the chapter, he says, Jesus is a better priest. And then he transitions and says this, Jesus offers a better covenant. You don't need the tabernacle or the sacrifices or the feast or the rituals. That was the old covenant. There is a new covenant in Jesus. This is why Jesus, when he gathers his disciples at the last supper, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance to me. Jesus is saying, there's a new way. There's a new covenant that is coming in me, Jesus says. Now, a covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. It's often been said that the idea of the covenant is like the skeleton of the Bible. If you want to put flesh on the Bible and start to understand it, you have to follow these covenants that God makes with people. He makes one with Adam. He makes one with Noah. 
He makes one with Abraham and he makes one with Moses and David and then the new covenant. There's six major ones in scripture. And all of them have promises. So I promise to do this, the Lord says, and you promise to do this. All of them have oaths. All of them have laws and regulations and all of them have a sign. Uh, Adam got a tree. Noah got a rainbow. Abraham got circumcision. So there's all these signs that go to show that, hey, listen, we're a part of the same covenant here. But in Hebrews 8, it's talking about the Mosaic covenant. Remember when God delivered his people from Egypt and Moses was leading them out and they stopped at Mount Sinai. Do you remember they stopped there? And what happened? Well, they stopped and camped and Moses went up to the, to the mountain and he got the law written on tablets. The Ten Commandments, the summary of all the laws. And Moses came down and said, okay, I met with God. Here's the laws. And God wants to make a new covenant. If we'll walk with him, he'll bless us and make us a blessing to the nations. That was the plan. What Hebrews 8 tells us is it didn't work. Not because God's plan failed, but but look at what it says in verse 8. He finds fault with them. With who? The people. That old covenant didn't work, not because it was a bad plan, but because people had evil hearts. And no matter what they could, they they just couldn't stay faithful to the Lord. They kept failing in their relationship with the Lord because their hearts were not right. This covenant was external. It wasn't internal. And they just constantly failed. So it says in verse 6 that God is bringing a better covenant, a new covenant. Because the first covenant had faults in it. And if it didn't, there wouldn't be a a need for a new one. But there is a new one and there is a, a desperate need. And then he quotes this promise from Jeremiah 31. Where the Lord talks to his people and says, listen, there's going to come a day in which a new covenant is going to come. Look, look at there, verse eight. It says, behold, the days are coming. These are the days, church, right now. These are the days. The Jeremiah prophesied, we're in those days when I'm gonna establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It's not gonna be like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the one on Mount Sinai. It's not gonna be like that when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. For they didn't continue in my covenant. They failed. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And here it is, verse 10. This is the new covenant. What God is offering to us today, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law into their minds. I'm going to write it on their heart. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And they're not going to teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. Listen, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Let me describe to you this new covenant that began after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The covenant that is for us. What God wants to, uh, the promise God is giving to us and the relationship he's inviting us into. I want to encourage you to write this down. First of all, this new covenant is internal. Internal. In verse 10. I'm going to put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. So the Old Testament has 613 laws summarized in the Ten Commandments. So the law came down on tablets of stone and Moses said, here's the law that God wants you to keep. And the book of Romans teaches us that one of the reasons God did that is to show us that we just can't keep the law. (laughs) We can't, like for 15 minutes, we just can't do it. We just don't have the ability to do that. And so this generation failed and failed and failed. But he says, this this new covenant I'm making with you is different than that. I'm going to start from the inside and work out, not the outside and work in. So in the new covenant, the first thing God does is this. 
is he makes you born again. So here's this religious leader bound in this old system and he comes up to Jesus in John 3 and says, I wanna be saved. And Jesus says, well, okay, you gotta be born again. What does that mean? Well, what has to happen is first, something has to change inside of you. This is not the law coming down and we're called to change our hearts by keeping the law. No, no, no. The first work God does in every person as he saves them is to give them a new heart. And now all of a sudden, listen, Instead of everything being about duty, all of a sudden it's delight and desire because God has given you a want to. So now your relationship with Jesus is no longer do this, do this, do this, and you're going to be okay. It is that God has put something inside of you that longs to do what is right. And so you're doing what is right, not out of duty, but because you actually believe that Jesus is better. That's because there's a new heart there. It has to begin with that. It's internal. It's also personal, this new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So instead of following these commands, you're following a a person. I'm gonna gonna gather a people to me. I'm gonna get a body. I'm gonna get a family. That's what Jesus is gathering. And his desire, listen, is not just to have obedient servants. His desire is to have loving children who know him and walk with him and and frankly fall in love with him. And then look at verse 11. I want to make sure you understand this. It says, and those who are a part of this new covenant, they're not going to teach one to his neighbor and each one saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Now I want to be, I want to make sure I explain this because uh, it seems like at first it's saying that you don't need preachers and I really love it here and I don't. My family's super happy and I love being your pastor. I say it all the time, just to remind you. Uh, So I wanna make sure that you understand this verse isn't saying you don't need preachers. And I'm not making this up, this is really true. So the New Testament continues to affirm the need for this role of preacher pastor. But listen, let me tell you what this is saying. When God wanted to speak to his people in the Old Testament, particularly at Mount Sinai, who went up to the mountain and met with God? Moses, who else went? Joshua waited at the bottom. Caleb was there watching all the people build a golden calf. Moses went up. And so there was, there was a real separation in the old covenant between you and God. The priest could mediate for you, but you really couldn't get close. What this is saying is this, listen, when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he speaks to you directly. Like some of you may have never experienced this. The only word for God you get is, is from me, and this is important, but I'm calling you as Jesus is into a real relationship with God where you are hearing from him. And so it's not everyone begging you to know him, know him. Look, from the least to the greatest, anyone can go up to Mount Sinai and meet with God. This is why Jesus, there's so much to say here, but this is why when Jesus came, he spent so much time with the least of these because Jesus showed up in this perverted system of Judaism, which is far from what God intended, which made it very clear that you couldn't meet with God, though only the priest could. And what Jesus does, he says this, that prostitute can meet with me. Like that tax collector can meet with me. Like all you have to do is come to faith in me. You don't need any mediator except for Jesus. This was a massive switch when the very least could go right into the presence of God and meet with him. 
That's the new covenant. The curtain is gone. There's an invitation for you to come and to know him. It is internal. It is personal. Finally, it is eternal. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. But he's saying in this new covenant, you're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus mean when he hung up on the cross and said, it is finished? What he meant is this, once and for all, he was the ultimate last sacrifice. And you don't need any other sacrifice but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are taken care of, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus already did. So your confidence that you have a right relationship with God is not based upon how well you did yesterday, but on how well Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He perfectly fulfilled the law. In the most miraculous way possible, God took all of your sins and put it on Jesus and all Jesus' righteousness and gave it to you so you're declared righteous. And some of you need this word from verse 12. And so the Lord says, I will remember your sins no more. He's not holding it over your head. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more guilt. You're free from that. Why? Because Jesus took it all. All the guilt, all the shame for your past. It's already been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the life that God is inviting you into. It's personal and it's internal and it's life-changing. It's dynamic. It is moment by moment and day by day as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to give me just a moment to show you why I believe this is so important for us this morning. If you're with me, say amen. Have you ever noticed the dramatic difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Just even if you're not a scholar, just in the way it feels. You open the Old Testament and you, you get to the end of Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and you just, there's just law after law after law about what kind of food you can eat and how you dress and your giving and your worship and your sacrifices. And then the New Testament feels completely different than that. It's because it's a different covenant. And although there's all kinds of commands in the New Testament, do you know the one overriding command is in two simple words. When Jesus came in to this complicated system of Judaism and he just said this, follow me. That's the command of the new covenant. Well, Jesus, what about that? Just follow me. What about that? No, just follow me. But I don't know about that. Okay, we'll figure it out. Just come and follow me. The invitation is into a relationship with the Lord himself. He shows up and says, follow me. Do you know why the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus? Because Jesus dismantled their entire system. And all of their identity and their ability to control people was all in that system. Imagine you build your entire life upon this system and it is the system by which you find your life and identity. And in one moment, Jesus shows up and says, you don't need that anymore, you just need me. And they were so threatened by the power they were losing when Jesus showed up that they decided it'd be better to kill him than to listen to him because it's terrifying when God starts to take down your system. And I wish, I really wish I was smart enough to have seen the connection between John 7 the last two weeks and, and, and Hebrews 8. Like I wish I could tell you I meant to do this because it's brilliant. 
I mean, Jesus shows up at one of the biggest festivals of the year and thousands of people have come and they're doing these water rituals. You know, they get this water in a gold basin and they pour it on the altar and everybody watches and it's the old covenant. And Jesus shows up and says this, you don't need that anymore. Like you don't need that. I am the living water, come and drink for me. And what he's doing, and this is why it says three times they want to arrest him in John 7, he's tearing down their system. He said, skip the festivals. You don't need the temple. You don't need the sacrifices. Come to me. Now listen to me carefully. Religious leaders and modern pastors have always loved legalism. We love the rules. We love the laws. You know why? Because it's a way in which we can control people. Like the way in which we can get everybody to do what we think they need to do is by heaping on law and guilt and condemnation. And there's something about that we like. I'm just telling you, in the carnal flesh, pastors enjoy legalism. And to be honest with you, a lot of people enjoy it as well because if we can just tell you what to do, you don't have to think about what to do. And instead of you getting on your knees, asking the Lord what you should do, you just do whatever we tell you to do. And then you're good because you don't have to think. And we're good because you're doing what we want you to do. Pragmatically, it works. The problem is it creates mindless and spiritless people who actually don't know God at all. And so what God wants to do is dismantle this legalistic system which makes you think that the way to God is doing all the right things and saying this, I just want you to invite you to, to Jesus Christ where you will have a life-giving, daily, spirit-led, dynamic process in which you are learning from me and hearing from me. Listen, if I lead you in, into that life by God's grace, through, through the word of God. If I lead you into that life, first of all, that demands that I trust God's work in you as opposed to just trying to tell you what to do. I gotta trust God's work in you. But listen, bigger than that, you gotta walk with God. But you've got to start hearing from God. You've gotta start asking what God wants from you. And most of you have grown up in a system where it's just do this, do this, do this. Okay. Now God's saying, well, hold on just a minute. Why don't you walk with me and let's dismantle the system brick by brick. And I want to teach you what it's like to have a relationship with me. Let me, let me give you an example. A dangerous example, but I'm going to give it to you because it's, it works. Let's think about giving. The Old Testament is filled with commands on giving. The easiest thing for a pastor to do is put up some laws for giving. Everybody needs to give this, okay? That's so much easier for me and for you because I can try to get you to give that much and then you can just say, well, that's how much you can give. But the reality is when you open up the New Testament, it doesn't say things like that. It says this, Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, running over, pouring into your lap. So what the Lord is saying is, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Well, why don't you give and know that according to how much you give, it's going to be given back to you. That's different. Then think about this one, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each person should give according to their heart, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Which means what God is wanting you to do, listen, is to get on your knees before a holy God and say, God, what do you want to do with what I have? 
scary, right? Like, God, what do you want to do? Here it is. It's yours. God, what do you want? And then listen to the Lord and walk in obedience to it. And so what that means is that I have to trust that God's going to tell you something right. And you have got to actually walk with the Lord. One of the things that's just heavy on my heart today is as I'm thinking about this. This afternoon, we're going to have a meeting for those of, in our church who lead our discipleship groups. For the leaders and I know what I'm going to hear today. I know this, okay? Because I've done this a bunch. I'm going to have guys raise their hand. The ladies aren't going to do it this much because they're, they're better in this way, in most ways. Guys are going to raise their hand, and here's what they're going to say. Pastor, I can't get my guys in my group to read a chapter a day. What do I do? Pastor, I can't get, my guys won't memorize a verse. One guy's memorize verses. I can't get him to, because that's what we ask them to read a chapter a day and memorize a verse a week. I don't know what to do with that. Like what I want to do is go, go law. Like I want to just say, you're, you're pitiful. A chapter, five minutes a day. Like I want to cultivate all of the, the, the pastor guilt that we have and say, just come on. And, but the reality is, how can I convince someone through the law to just enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ where they're reading a chapter a day because they actually want to meet Jesus? Like I don't know what to do with that. Like I'm in a total loss because I feel like the Lord is dismantling my desire to control and to manipulate and to get you to do things through guilt. But guilt is a terrible and godless motivator. And so I've got to just say, I, I'm going I'm I'm to call you from the word of God to enter into a right and good and healthy relationship with Jesus. And then I'm going to say to you, you need to be hearing from God. Like you need to walk with the Lord. Some of you are really bound by a system this morning and Jesus just wants to start taking it down and you like it, it's safe because there's something terrifying about losing the system. Like you found all of your identity there and God wants to take the form which is your life and fill it with something that is real in himself because in that system of legalism there is no life and no passion and no love and no joy. It's just mechanical and external and Jesus comes to you this morning and says this, I have come, John 10, 10, to give you life. So why don't you try walking with me? There's some of you who just... You're just not enjoying Jesus. And it's because it could be that you're not following Jesus. You've bought into a system. Some of that could be on us. I just want to say to you this morning, God wants to start by giving you a new heart. He wants to start by you taking this personally, embracing this new covenant of grace in which you are walking with him day by day, hearing from him. It's dynamic and it is real. Why in the world would you settle for anything else than a real life-giving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And so in just a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to exalt Christ with our singing. But I'm going to ask you if this is in your heart to come and talk to one of our pastors or prayer partners to get on your knees and just say, Lord, I, I, whatever system there is that's keeping me, dismantle it, rebuild it with authenticity and love for you. Let's just ask the Lord to begin that work in this place today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.